You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. Asian Americans have experienced a sharp increase in racist attacks. Professor and historian Erica Lee and author and activist Helen Zia join the Post to discuss how the past can help inform our understanding of where we are today. Let's listen. Good afternoon, and welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Michelle Yehi Lee, a national reporter at the Washington Post. Joining me today are two esteemed guests. First, we have Erica Lee, Professor of History and Asian American Studies. She is also Director of the Immigration History Research Center at the University of Minnesota. And we also have Helen Zia, author and activist and a spokesperson for the Justice for Vincent Chin campaign. We're here to discuss the rise in anti-Asian attacks during the pandemic and the long history of attacks and discrimination against Asian American and Pacific Islanders in this country. So thank you both for joining us and welcome. Thank you so much. Thank you. Good to be here to talk about this important subject. Well, let's dive in. Helen, let's start with you. We've seen a rise in anti-Asian attacks for nearly a year, you know, since lockdown started. And um, early on in the pandemic, early on in the lockdown in April 2020, you actually foresaw that the attacks would rise and could rise. You wrote in the Washington Post, quote, there are hundreds of reports of anti-Asian harassment and violence. This violence could become much worse as more people lose jobs and lives. It, you almost predicted what was going to happen. Um, why did you think it could get worse as it has? Well, very sadly, we have seen this uh, terrible nightmare before. Uh, the history that um, Professor Erica Lee has written about so brilliantly in many places, um, you know, really this has been told over and over again in the history of Asian Americans in this country. Uh, this is where we fit into the white supremacy, um, you know, a hierarchy of keeping people apart to uh, take attention away from the real problems, to blame, scapegoat, attack, kill, harass, and, uh, you know, Asian Americans have been bearing the brunt of that from the time we've been on this continent. And so, um, so we don't even have to go that far back. We've seen this happening, you know, after 9-11, we've seen this. And I was part of uh, a time when anybody who looked Japanese was under attack, not, you know, and being killed because they looked Japanese. And that happened in Detroit in 1982 when a young man named Vincent Chin was killed. That was a time of incredible economic stress crisis in America, um, the collapse of the entire manufacturing sector of America. And it took a little while, but sooner or later, the groups that were blaming each other arrived at a group to blame, and that was Japan and anybody who looked Japanese. Um, Japan was blamed because they made fuel efficient cars, but hello, so did Germany. However, uh, targeting people who look German was going to be um, uh, not a great strategy. So the idea was people who looked Japanese and that may, meant anybody East Asian and there were deaths and, and actually Vincent Chin was killed in the third year of that economic crisis. And um, we've seen this, you know, many, many times played out in American history. 
And so uh, at the beginning of this pandemic, it was very clear, you know, people were losing jobs all over the place. Um, even before the first case was reported in North America, uh, there was harassment shunning the, the collapse of Chinatown and the businesses there. So everybody who was um, Asian American knew that uh, this was already bad and it was likely to get worse because not only is there a ter terrible economic, uh, global economic crisis now, um, no economist can really predict when this is going to end. People are suffering. People are also losing loved ones, getting sick, not knowing where to turn, struggling to get food and shelter. And so we know that um, already the pump was primed to blame people who look Chinese you know, blame China and anyone who looks that way. And so we knew, I, I wasn't prescient then. I um, was merely vocalizing what um, most Asian Americans already knew and learning from history. We know that it's not going to end today, even with this recognition and the conversations that are being had now. Um, sadly, it, it's going to continue and will probably get worse. And I hate saying that, but that's what history shows us. Well, I, thank you for that overview. I think thinking about this in the context of economy, the domestic pressures, the outward looking blaming, um, you know, I think that's really important to keep in mind. And Erica, I also want to ask you, because you've spoken out about this before, you've highlighted that immigrant communities have been singled out in public health crises and that there's been, um, you know, this phenomenon of anti-immigrant anti disease rhetoric, which I think is really important to talk about here. Why is that? And what can we learn about what the AAPI community is facing during this pandemic? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so one of the ways that I like to start thinking about this with my own students is to identify some of the labels that we commonly use to describe immigration. It's an invasion. It's a plague. It's a it's very threatening. It's very um, invasive, right? Um, and going back to some of the very earliest immigration debates that we've had in the United States, it's very clear that whatever immigrant problem was identified in uh, in our country was often tied to a public health outbreak. So when when yellow fever struck Pennsylvania in the 18th centuries. It was called the German flu. Um, Jewish uh, immigrants were blamed with bringing typhoid. Uh, Italians were blamed for a polio outbreak uh, on the East Coast. But there is something really specific about Asians and Chinese people that have, have taken on the sort of outsized um, idea of China being dirty, diseased, um, and Chinese people being sources of contagion. We saw this in 1900 in San Francisco when there was a bubonic plague outbreak. The local officials decided to quarantine um, all of San Francisco Chinatown, keeping these people in Chinatown, but making sure that white residents were evacuated. And I think that you know, what's so important here about what's happening today is that this is a culmination, a 
logical culmination of our really long and deep history of racism and racial violence directed at Asian American and Pacific Islanders, but that there was a specific spark in 2020 and 2021, and that was the divisive political rhetoric of many of our leaders who insisted on calling the coronavirus the China virus, the Chinese flu, the Wuhan virus, etc. This allowed what had been a uh, certainly again a deep-rooted sentiment and stereotypes about Asians and and Chinese people in particular to explode to. Um, to justify the violence that we have seen um, this past year. Thanks for that. Well, um, I want to get into that deep root of the history here. Um, Erica, you are one of the nation's leading historians on immigration and the Asian American experience. Give us a big picture overview. Put us, uh, take us, you know, through that history and where we stand now in this moment in the context of that. How much time do we have, Michelle? <laughs> um, you know, one of the things I think is so important, um, and and um, the Washington Post Race in America series, you've, you've dipped into some of this history. Helen has been speaking about much of this history today and in many other interviews, but I, I cannot impress upon all of us today enough the fact that Asian Americans have been at the heart of some of our country's most racist laws, some of our country's most racist and violent incidents. And these are just things that most people do not know. So I, I know that in the intro to this segment, um, um, the 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act, of course, the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II, but peppered throughout our timeline of history are many other race riots, um, expulsions, massacres. The largest mass lynching of, of people in the United States happened in LA, um, targeting Chinese in 1871. Um, all of Seattle's Chinese residents were uh, forcibly pushed out of the city's limits in 1886. There are anti-Filipino riots in 1929 in California. Are, are driven out of Bellingham, Washington in, in 1907. So this is not something new, what we are seeing. Um, it is built on this history of violence, um, but it is also a history that, that most Americans know. And I think that this is one of the, the greatest travesties um, of where we find ourselves today, that that, that we have to continually remind um, um, our communities that this is that Asian Americans are part of the the history of racism and that this is this isn't going to go away anytime soon and and we need broad-based um, solutions to to be tackling it right and unfortunately it has been a long-standing problem and you know there is a feeling that it's just it's not going away in fact just before logging on here I saw a tweet saying Chinese pandemic and you know it's March 2021 and we're still talking about this every day and um, which is why it's so important to important to remor remember that context I think and I want to take a moment to talk about that 1882 Chinese Exclusion Act because when you talk about 1882 it seems so far away but then uh, upon research I remembered that it 
what it was in place for 61 years. It wasn't repealed until 1943, which is quite recent. Um, Helen, can you tell us about the significance of that act? I mean, the, this country legally banned Chinese people for 61 years. Um, tell us why that's been so significant and what were the fallouts of that prohibition in the decades to come? So, yes, 1882 was definitely, uh, you know, a year when the entire United States government took its institutions and power to, um, you know, consecrate, to put into law what was already going on in the in the kinds of things that um, that uh, Erica just mentioned. I mean, they were going on well before 1882. And in fact, um, you know, 1882 and the Chinese Exclusion Act was merely the culmination of that to turn all of those massacres and what I uh, lynchings, um, driving out, uh, putting people on boats into the sea without food, water, or any way to whatever, so that they would die. Um, these were uh, part of an ethnic cleansing, really, if we call it for what it is, um, you know, that led to the federal government coming up with this law. Um, and as you pointed out, that continued for 60 years for Chinese. But the other thing that happened with this law was it was extended um, periodically, uh, not just in time, but also to apply to uh, basically every other Asian ethnicity that had immigrated to the U.S. and to ban uh, e eventually every Asian uh, person from uh, becoming a citizen to the U.S. And so, you know, it, and it wasn't just 1940, um, you know, the 1940s when that was removed uh, for Chinese, but it wasn't until 1952 that that ban of, of citizenship and participation in the American democracy was removed for all Asians. And so when we look at that, you know, that's not that long ago. And what it means to not be able to become a citizen means you cannot become part of the American process. You cannot participate, you cannot vote, you cannot become elected official, um, all of those things. And in many cases, you couldn't own property, you couldn't really become an American and uh, be fully in American life. So when we look at um, Asian American, you know, sort of political uh, evolution over time, you really have to say that didn't start until 1952 when people were allowed to become naturalized American citizens. Um, but one thing I think it's important to remember is all of these things, we have been, we Asian Americans, but also we, all of the American people, have been deprived of this history. And it hasn't been an accidental deprivation. We know that there have been, for example, with the um, the golden spike of joining the Continental Rail, uh, you know, Railroad, Chinese workers who built the most difficult part of that railroad were deliberately excluded from the picture. And you could take that as a metaphor for how Asian American history has been treated. We've been excluded from the history and excluded from the dialogue and the, the political discourse of America. So when, um, and the damage of that is that, you know, kind of we're absent as real history and real people. And what gets filled in people's minds instead is this kind of cartoon character of this, this contagion, this invader, this enemy alien, um, or if we go into the model minority, the, the uh, 
the people who serve the role of being the good minority, but also who are silent and passive and never fight back. And all of those are ingredients to be um, to feed into the racism that we see today. People are attacking Asians for one that they they are blaming and targeting Asians, but also because they think they're not going to fight back. You know, there's not going to be any repercussions. You know, the uh, demagogues in government who are looking to deflect blame from themselves for um, being incompetent in dealing with this pandemic. Instead, it's blame the Asians. And so all of this um, kind of uh, poison that inhabits our uh, people's minds instead of real history and real facts and real people is is the damage, not only of 19 of 1882, but all of the things that preceded that and have followed that even in, in today's um, today's rhetoric. And I, I just would like to say that, you know, we say China virus, Wuhan virus, and now people are saying UK variant and, you know, South Asian variant. It's not just the words, it's all of the rhetoric, the hatred, the hysteria, the emotion that went behind the speaking of those words. It, you know, it wasn't just the words themselves. And, and behind that hysteria, is also just the weight of all of this history and and the continued use of Asian Americans in that way to divide people so that we don't come together and say, hey, what? You know, let's deal with the real problem here. Instead, they're attacking Asian Americans. You, you've touched on so many great points there. I mean, it's, uh, from the point about the exclusion of a lot of this history, I mean, just even looking back at some of these major cases and incidents, it's hard for me to recall learning about it in school. And I know that Helen and you, uh, Erica, you have both talked about the need for more education in our school system, system about this history. Um, and you, you also touched on the fact that, you know, the rhetoric around just tying specific geographies and people to the disease is just so dangerous. And in fact, they're uh, warned against by the WHO. I mean, that's a real big concern. Um, you know, speaking of the exclusion in history and cases that the broader public might not know about, Erica, I was wondering if you can tell us about Wong Kim Ark, the Chinese-American cook who was at the center of a landmark but often forgotten Supreme Court decision. And uh, tell us why this matters, uh, for, especially for people who may never have heard of this case before. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought that up because, you know, in addition to this long history of what was done to Asian Americans, there is also the same history of what Asian Americans have done, what Asian Americans have done to combat this, this discrimination and, and also why it matters for all of us. And that is why the case of Wong Kamark is so important. Wong Kamark was born in the United States um, during a time of, of just great sentiment. It was also a time after that Congress put in place the 14th Amendment, being that all persons born in the United States should be considered citizens thereof. Um, a, an amendment that was directly applied to African Americans to free Blacks, um, but eventually uh, encompassed all of us. But in this period of, of great anti-Chinese racism and xenophobia, um, Immigration officials in San Francisco tried to toy with the law. They wanted to test it, and they tested it on Wong Kamark. He was a U.S. citizen, um, but he decided to take a trip to visit his, his parents who were residing in China. And when he returned back to the United States, 
the land of his birth in San Francisco, immigration officials denied him entry. And they said, you know, uh, we see that you claim that you've been born in the United States, but your parents are Chinese, subject to the Chinese emperor, and our naturalization laws, which Helen mentioned, say that only white persons can be naturalized citizens of the United States. So we don't think that the 14th Amendment should apply to you because we think that citizenship is something that is inherited by blood versus related to where you were actually born. And Wang Kamark decided to take them to court. He hired a lawyer. Uh, the case went to the federal district court. The federal district court said, uh, you are right. The 14th Amendment does uh, include you. It includes anybody who was born in the United States, regardless of their parents' status or their citizenship. The U.S. government uh, appealed, and so it went to the Supreme Court. And in 1898, the Supreme Court ruled in Wong Kamark's favor, thereby ensuring that birthright citizenship is guaranteed to all of us, regardless of our parents' immigration status or our parents' um, heritage, but all of us who are born in the United States. This is a landmark decision. It matters to all of us. It's not just something that applies to the rights of Asian Americans. Uh, and it's so important to, to understand in, in our contemporary period because this is a, a ruling that has continually been under threat in, in recent years by um, some lawmakers who want to limit birthright citizenship to change the way in which birthright citizenship works, especially in relationship to undocumented immigrants or children of undocumented Americans. I'm so thankful that you uh, described that for us. I, I think it's such an unknown case for so many people. and framing it as the contribution of the API history is so important, I think, because so much of this conversation is around what's been done to or against API communities. So I think it's important to mark this case and, and talk about it. And Helen, you know, one of the most notorious events in Asian American civil rights movement was the 1982 death of Vincent Chin. And Vincent Chin is a name that's very common in my Asian circles, and I'm sure your circles as well, but I don't hear him talked about much at all beyond my Asian friends. Um, tell us about your role in the Justice, Justice for J Vincent Chin campaign and how his killing was a turning point that galvanized Asian American communities. Um, well, thanks for that question. And, and it's really true that uh, not only is the what happened in the Vincent Chin case something that um, Asian Americans talk about, but what's happening today is eerily similar to what happened at that time. I had mentioned that you know it was a time of great economic crisis. I was in Detroit at that time. I had gone to Detroit as a as a young you know activist, community organizer, and some friends said, you know, if you really want to know about social change in America, you should go to the heartland of America. So I ended up in Detroit and I got a job. I actually worked in a stamping plant, an auto factory for a, a few years until I was laid off with every other, you know, auto worker, um, millions of people, and not just auto workers, but really the entire industrial Midwest was suffering out of work. And, and, you know, in that time, as I was saying earlier, you know, the 
forces that could do something about it instead said it was Japan that was to blame. And uh, a young man named Vincent Chin was, um, was killed. He was Chinese, not Japanese, but as every Asian American knows, um, you know, people don't ask your actual ethnicity. And in these times when groups like Stop AAPI Hate have been recording, uh, you know, the, the attacks that have gone on and more than 3,000 so far in this period, um, the majority of people who have been attacked have not been Chinese. And so this is a, another part of the experience that, that we as Asian Americans know. But so I uh, just knew that when Vincent Chin was killed in a climate of intense hate, that there was more to it. I was a young journalist then, I had been laid off. I knew the misery that people were experiencing. I knew that they were looking for, you know, some way to lash out with their frustration and that Vincent was killed then, but it could have been me. It could have been anybody I knew who looked Japanese. And within that, you know, it's not that long ago, 1982, there wasn't this uh, acceptance of a term called Asian American. You know, that had come out of a student movement and Asian American, you know, movement, but it hadn't reached the, you know, the, the restaurant workers, the, um, the mainstream of Asian Americans. It, it wasn't in Chinatowns and Japantowns and little, uh, you know, little Manilas and places like that. But so that's when other Asian Americans came together and said, you know, you know what? We are different, we have different languages, cultures and so forth. But when it comes to somebody who might want to attack us because of how we look, we are all in danger. So really that was the beginning of a movement and I, I was part of that. I um, felt that you know, my understanding of, of, of organizing, I was a you know, budding journalist, I knew how to write press releases and, and um, talk about our, our history to people. That's how I got involved and uh, little knowing that it was going to take over my life for quite a, quite a while, but I wasn't the only one. It was really a whole bunch of communities coming together with, you know, and it wasn't Kumbaya. We had a lot of issues to deal with. Could Chinese and Japanese Americans work together considering the history of World War II wasn't that long ago? What about South Asians and Southeast Asians and how do we all sort of fit in together? And then how do we relate to, in a city like Detroit, to the, a largely black African-American community? There's, you know, and, and just really the whole dialogue of race in America. So that's what, um, the Vincent Chin case came to um, to really elevate and and uh, exemplify, uh, you know, the evolution of Asians in America and how we see ourselves and how we how we can become part of of a, a national discourse that we were always part of, but we were what I call M I H missing in history. You know, the mm -hmm. right of every American to be a, a an American citizen because they're born here is because of Asian Americans. Brown versus Board of Education was also based on another uh, Supreme Court case that Asian Americans fought for, Chinese Americans in the 1880s. So these things have been missing in history. And, right. um, and right. as long as they continue to be missing, these kind of things will uh, continue to happen because this is part of white supremacy. The, the continued ignorance of people helps all 
helps support white supremacy. So this stuff about Asian Americans, it's not just an Asian American thing. It really is an all American thing. And if we really want to um, fight systemic racism and, and uh, address white supremacy, everybody has to know these things and do something about it. So I'm so, really glad you mentioned that. And I have no idea how we now only have a couple of minutes because I feel like I've only been talking to you for a couple minutes. But in our final moments, I want to ask both of you about that, that which is allyship and, and bringing other communities into this conversation, working alongside other communities um, toward the same goal of just you know, equality and justice, you know, many of APIs have been thinking during this moment, how can we be good allies during this moment of racial reckoning, recognizing the pains that other community communities are going through, but also how do we assert ourselves and our pains during this moment and claim the seat at the conversation around race and racial justice? Um, for some reason, this is a struggle for our community and, and part of it might be that feeling of invisibility, maybe the lack of knowing our history. Um, I hate to ask you for succinct answers to this because we can talk about this forever, but Erica and then Helen, can you speak to this in our final minutes? Absolutely. You know, the, uh, the quick answer is that we've done this before. We've done this before. We have come together across ethnicity, across racial alliances, across uh, of faith. Um, and, you know, one of the things that we have seen in the past four years is, I think, you know, a, a greater commitment to ending racial discrimination, a greater commitment to allyship across so many categories that typically divide us because we have seen how in the most brutal conditions, an attack on one of our communities is an attack on all of us. So I, I do find, you know, great frustration um, and anger and sadness uh, today, but also um, great hope knowing that from we we can we can and we are building these bridges but also that we're in a good place right now after four years of making those bridges even stronger helen your yeah. final thought i i would just like to you know wholeheartedly agree with everything erica just said and for young asian americans or all asian americans to recognize that we have been deprived of our own history and so at this time when you know um, Asian Americans want to be part of this, they want to uh, end the division that's been going on and really build towards something better uh, to support Black Lives Matter or to talk about the attacks on the Asian American communities. We have to be understand where we fit in, and I think that's where some of the insecurity for Asian Americans. We you know it, we have to define ourselves, and we have not done that, and society has has, um, you know, it benefits society by not having us understand that, anybody. So we have nothing to be ashamed of. We have contributed to the um, the uh, progress and uh, justice in America, and we have a lot more to do. So the thing is to be visible about it. Don't let this invisibility continue and, uh, and to recognize that what we're experiencing now, and, you know, since time immemorial here, um, other communities have too and to really understand how we fit in and not always in good ways in this framework that you know was built on the enslavement of people from africa and the genocide of of, of indigenous peoples you know our experience was also part of that too 
And, um, and so we have something to say and we have a role to play. And it's not just an Asian American thing, but all Americans who care about the future of this country and this world really should understand this history too. Well, I feel very inspired by uh, what you both have just said and also having had this conversation with you about the history of our community. You know, we know that a, an entire generation of civil rights uh, leaders who have uh, worked so hard for us to get to where we are, uh, are now passing. And, and I know that many young generations are looking to them and trying to emulate them. And I think it's important to talk about this and talk about the history. Um, and unfortunately, that's all the time we have. I wish I could talk to you for much longer, but I thank you so much, Erica Lee and Helen Zia for speaking with me and joining us. Thank you. And thank you all for joining Washington Post Live. Tomorrow at 12.30 p.m., tune in for my colleague Robin Gibbons' conversation with fashion designer and philanthropist Diane von Furstenberg. I'm Michelle Yehili, and thank you for joining Washington Post Live. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.